going to lead a little of your help today. So there'll be a couple places I, I, I know you can kind of jump in and get started and kind of reinforce since I won't have to do all the heavy lifting. So we'll start right at the very beginning. If I were to start this sentence, could you complete this? A long time, a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Thank you very much. Star Wars and movies like that teach great principles many times. This particular movie there teaches about the, the, the battle between good and evil, teaches about choices that you can make, but ultimately those are in our heart and mind stories. We can pick out truths that mean things to us, but nothing more than just a story. And I guess the first question I want to pose to us today is sometimes do you and I look at the Bible the same way that we look at a movie like Star Wars? Oh, it contains great truth, but somewhere in there it's just a story. Uh, We may not say that out loud. If someone were to ask you to explain what you think the Bible is, you'd probably quickly give the Bible church answer. Oh, it's God's word. But do we live the Bible like it's God's word? Or do we live it like it's just a story that has good, important truths for us to live by? If someone were to look at us, does our life look like a redacted Christian life? Some principles that we follow, that we agree with, that we like, and others that we look at and go, hmm, I'm not quite sure, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You may recognize that phrase all the way from Genesis when Satan looked at Eve and said, did God really say that? That temptation has been around a long time for us to doubt God's word. The easy passages are easy, but the hard passages, some part, if you're not not completely honest with yourself, provide a challenge for us to determine whether we have chosen to be a Christian atheist or whether we're going to act on the difficult things that we read in God's word. Things like love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. How many times am I supposed to forgive him, Lord? Seventy times seven. Or maybe you said this. But if you only knew what they did, how about this? Have you, you said or you heard this before? Well, I can forgive, but I can never forget. Does that sound a little bit like I'm not totally forgiving to you? Oh, I'm not saying that you do forget. I, I believe there's truth in the statement, but I'm wondering sometimes if when they say that, They're actually saying, I'm going to mostly forgive, but I'm also not going to totally forgive, and therefore I'm not going to forget. Those tough, difficult passages put a challenge in our Christian walk as we try to figure out today, what does it mean doing life together? Because the the life of a follower of Christ, as we see in the New Testament, was a radical change. See, to us, it's been, uh, it's been tie-dyed 
we, we put it through the washing machine a couple of times and it's all smelly and it's got the little crystals in it and it's going to be fresh for 30 days. And it, it doesn't have the street smell that it did in the first generation. We need to be reminded that the life we're called to is, uh, 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 according to a great song from a number of years ago, upside down. It's not close to being normal. It's 180 degrees from being normal. And what you and I are called to is not a clean version of life. We're called to a radical life. And that radical life only can happen if we do it together. It is so difficult to pull it off. God knew that we needed each other to be able to do that. He knew that he needed to be with us and he would send us a Holy Spirit, but he also had a plan in mind about how we would do that. And as we sit here today, we are that plan. The church of the living God today is God's plan for how you and I or how anyone who chooses to be a follower of Christ can achieve a life with Christ. Only By doing life together. All right, so I said I need your help. Here's another one. Tell me if you can guess what year this is. Seems like every time I get up here, I have some story about how how old I am. But nonetheless, here, here goes one. The song, the number one song of this year was Joy to the World. All the what? Saw the boys and girls. There you go. The number one movie was Fiddler on the Roof. The most popular. Yeah, these are guys going. Yeah, see, they're already over their heads. They're going, okay, I'm, I'm wonderfully too young to know. Uh, the most popular television show was number four, my mother's favorite, Gunsmoke. She said he was the handsomest man on television. Number three, Marcus Welby. Number two, The Flip Wilson Show. And number one, All in the Family. Anybody got to guess what year it was? 1972. 1960. It's 1971 uh, at that point. Good guess at that point. I was, now you can do, pull out your computers and do your math on your phone. I was 18 years old. I was smarter than my parents. My generation was going to fix America and then fix the rest of the world. How'd we do? Exactly. See if you can complete this lyric because this was our mantra. All we need is That's right. You can't do the love part without the yada yada da that comes after it. It's there. Somehow that love yada da da da, we were going to fix everything. And yet, I'm not sure that the world's not more messed up. But we thought we could do it all. I thought I could do it all. When we were smarter than our generation, not just me, but our whole generation was smarter than the generation before us. And therefore, we could afford, because we were so intellectually superior, we could afford to ask really tough, challenging questions that my mom and dad would never have asked. It was because of our enlightenment that we were able to, as you see on this Time magazine cover, ask this very important question. Is God dead? For me, there were two very important tipping points that came in my spiritual journey. For all these questions in my generation were flying not only generationally, but they were flying in my heart as well. 
The number one question for me was, was the Bible relevant? It was a valid question for any generation, but I'm telling you, it was about as valid as it could be for ours. For some of us might remember, and I don't want to hurt your feelings a little bit, so I apologize. I'll blame this on the NyQuil. If I, if I offend you, I don't mean to. But we were reading a text that was translated in an English form that was over 350 years old that was written when Shakespeare was written. How many of you love to read Shakespeare? Yeah, you're weird. Okay. <laughs> because without the, the little Cliff Notes thing, thank goodness for Cliff Notes, right? I'd read this passage and go, what Dallas does that mean? I have no idea. Oh, that means he, and I went, okay, I don't know. I, that doesn't seem like that's what it says, but that's what it says. It says, okay, good. And I'd read another sentence and I'd go, I have no clue what that means. I, I don't know what that says. And I'd read back over here and he'd say, that's what that says. And I'd go, I don't know how that says that either, but I'm going to trust that it means that. And I sat in pews Sunday after Sunday and opened up my Bible and did the exact same thing. Read words that I had never used in my vocabulary, nor anyone around me ever used. How about this one? Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaulteth not itself. I don't know what vaulteth means. I still to this day have no clue what vaunteth means. It is not puffed up. And then I would close the Bible and go, okay. I got, I got something that charity's good, I guess, but I'm not quite sure. And then all of a sudden, a new Bible came out. Now, it was not a word-for-word translation. And we later were able to get better translations that were word for word that took upon, by the way, the great work that the King James Bible started in 1611, but just we didn't keep up with and keep the same pace that they did to do the diligent research of putting it in modern English, which is what they did in 1611. But then it came, it came out with a, a new transliteration called the Living Bible, and that same passage that I just read to you, all of a sudden, it came to us like this. Love is very patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and touchy. It does not hold grudges and would hardly even notice when others do it wrong. It's never glad about injustice but rejoices whenever truth wins out. And if you love someone, you'll be loyal to him no matter what the cost. You'll always believe in him, always expect the best of him, and always stand your ground in defending him. And that chapter would end, 1 Corinthians and verse 13. There are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And the question for me, is the Bible relevant, all of a sudden took a new meaning and a new change. And all of a sudden I began to understand what God's word was saying. And I began to become enthralled with what I read. Maybe I was asking the question, was this Christian thing more than just making sure that I didn't die and go to hell? I mean, 
I actually, of course, as many of you did, prayed every single night that the Lord would take and keep my, now I lay me down to sleep. Now I pray my Lord, my soul to keep. It was a terrible prayer for a little kid. You know, basically every night I, I acknowledged that I could die. It was a scary little thing. Maybe it was also involved with learning. I was learning that involved that this Christianity thing was not just giving my life over to Christ once, but yielding my life daily to God and understanding that what I needed to do is let him be the boss of me, not me be the boss of me, but him. So I began digging into God's word for myself and my faith became my own. It was not the faith of my upbringing. And I was discovering in God's word that uh, it was more than what I'd just heard. And I was asking the tough question of, do I really believe what I believe about God? So if the Bible was relevant, the second tipping point came to me was, was the Bible relevant to me personally? When I started digging into the Bible, I found more than just a set of don'ts. That seemed to be what all I heard of when, in my upbringing. I found more than this strict, uh, ready to pounce on every mood of a mistake I made, God, that I'd heard about. I found more than just advice like, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. Or advice like, Christians don't dance. Or how about this one? God doesn't live in the pool hall. I don't know where God lived, but I don't know why I wouldn't live there. I mean, it was obvious God chose to live everywhere else but there, so according to what I heard. It seemed that Christianity has taught with me that I had heard. It was all about my external experience, appearances. It was not about being changed. It was just making sure that the people that knew me didn't see the real me. I needed to put on my suit and put on my mask and go to church and play the game every Sunday. But when I, get it, I got the Bible alone and I started digging into it, I found passages that I'd never heard before, passages that seemed real life to me. They seemed to speak to the moment that I was living in. In Ephesians 4, I found, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It changed how I viewed relationships. In Malachi 3.10, I, I read this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of the host. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down uh, for you a blessing until there is no more need. It began pushing my thinking about how I handled my possessions for the rest of my life. Matthew 11.28 says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. It started pushing forward on how I dealt with stress and with sadness. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I read, No temptation has overtaken you, Michael, except what has been common to mankind. For God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you will be tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This Bible started making sense to me and it started shaping how I looked at life. Philippians 4.13 said, I can do all things through him which strengthens me. And so many days that re-energized my life. In Matthew Jesus, when asked what was the most important law, replied, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. And the first of the greatest commandment, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. At first glance, this was pretty easy for me because all my neighbors looked like me. 
They were all white and they were all middle class. It was when I considered my neighbor who lived in Pritchard, Alabama, that's where I had a disconnect. For the people who lived in Pritchard, Alabama, didn't live in my neighborhood. They didn't attend my high school, and they certainly would never attend my church. Not because they might not want to, because they were not allowed to. And I discovered that the hero of the story of the Good Samaritan was not the good guy. It was the Samaritan who was the outcast of the day. I couldn't look at myself. I was the Samaritan. I was the good guy, I thought, in the story. The Samaritan was the outcast. Am I the outcast? No. Am I looking at the outcast the way Jesus looked at the outcast? It pushed against who my neighbor was and whether I loved him or her as much as I did God. And the Bible really began to change who I was. Not just what I thought, not just what I acknowledged as truth, but how truth lived in me. But the biggest transformation was still to come. For I honestly will say that, guys, church to me when I was your age was a big yawn. Um, Messages were very boring. I hope I'm not being boring, but they were very boring and very monotonous. They were not relevant. It didn't seem to me at all. Relationships within the body of Christ were relatively shallow and guarded. In my church when I was growing up, there were not many moments when it seemed that God was the same God that I read about in the Bible. I mean, from Genesis to the very end, I I got this picture of who God was. But when I looked and heard the stories of those around me, I, I didn't hear about that God in their life. God must have just gotten old. And slowed down on his God stuff was how I figured it. Or maybe God had just become bored with humanity and uh, he had withdrew. In my church, nobody really cared about the poor. We talked about it, but we didn't do very much. No one talked about a miracle life transformation. There was no woman caught in adultery, but God loved me anyhow stories. God was not the most exciting activity in my life. And as far as I could tell, anyone else's life either. It really wasn't on my even top 10 list. And it was the last thing that I would consider that I would reorient my life toward. And then the second tipping point happened. I read Acts chapter 2. And here's what verse 42 said. They were continually devoting themselves. This is the early church. Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with them all. And anyone who might have need. And day by day, continually with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily, but day by day, those who were being saved. I began to think, was that not only what the church of the first century looked like 
But maybe could that be what the church today looked like? Was that a long, far time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Or was that actually something possible today? Was it possible that there could be supernatural communities where awesome was the commonplace, where lives were changed, where hearts were melted, where differences were melted or set aside, where love would reign, where needs were met, where the unwelcomed felt loved and embraced, and where radical lines disappeared, and where, excuse me, racial lines disappeared, where conversations would include uh, and conclude with this statement. And because Christ changed my life and this biblical functioning community was a part of that change, I now want to orient my life around being a part of that transformation in someone else's Christ journey. Let's focus the remaining part of our time, while my NyQuil still has a little left in it, on finding a couple of takeaways out of Acts chapter 2. And you can ask this question with me, the same question that I asked when I read this so many years ago. How well are you and how well am I contributing to the Acts chapter 2 church if it still is a possibility? In verse 42, it says, they continually devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. They learned together. They understood that it was important to, uh, to know what God's word said. You and I have a different mindset about knowledge I have to make sure that I can get you in a Hebrew sense of mind here. And that's this. You and I can actually know a fact and it not change. We can believe a fact we think. And we'll say, oh, I believe that. But it won't change how we act. To a Hebrew mind, they would challenge and say this. No, you really don't believe it. If you believed it, you would live like you believed it. So for us to say we believe God is a God of miracles but not expect God to do miracles means we really don't believe that. Here's what we say. Well, maybe that was just God back then. Did God really say that for today? And we ask those same questions and become that same Christian atheist redacting our beliefs to suit us and across the hard and difficult challenges of life. We just cover over it with black ink. But they learned together. They sat together and discussed God's word and chewed on it together and asked the tough questions of saying, what does that really mean for me? What does that really mean for you? They challenged each other. The Bible says that uh, we are to be a, a sharp object of flint against each other, to sharpen each other. We're actually supposed to challenge and push each other. I've said for years that the church is at its best when we every now and then kick each other in the rear end. When someone walks up to somebody and says, that's stinking thinking. That's not what the Bible teaches. Let me give you an encouragement by showing you how God would ask you to react in that situation. And you and I both have those things in our life that we get stinking thinking going. And I need the church to step up and say, Michael, that's not the Christ in you that's speaking right now. That's something else. You need to, you need to walk away from that. Put that belief down, not let that control your life and let God change you from the inside on what his word says, how you should respond to that. They had a hunger for God's word. 
They wanted to acknowledge the truth, not just in head acknowledgement, but they wanted to live their life according to their beliefs. In verse 44, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Ready? Bring your redacting pen out. Because you're going to ask this question. Uh, is that supposed to still be true today? By the way, a little insight here. Uh, that because of what we read in just a moment that they met in each other's homes, we're not to take this to mean that they all sold their houses and they all lived on the street. What we do take that to mean is this. As there was a need, people sold whatever was necessary to meet the need within the body of Christ. And that they didn't think that anything they owned was more important than what the body of Christ needed. Does that mean today that God may call you or me possibly to sell our homes because of the need of somebody else in our community? Not if I redact that out of my Bible, it doesn't. But uh, a number of great uh, uh, preachers today would challenge my thinking if I were to say that. They would say maybe the Bible actually means what it says it means. And maybe the American thought of what I've earned on my own is mine. Just because you were lazy and your life is messed up, that's all your problem. I've earned my stuff. It's mine. Maybe the Bible says what exactly it says. Maybe it means exactly what it means. And maybe the body of Christ is supposed to take care of each other. Even if it's sacrificial on our parts. I've gone to meddling now, haven't I? Because they loved one another. Um, They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This word fellowship, you know, is koinonia, you've heard, comes from koinos, which means common. What they had in common together. And what the most important thing they had in common together was that they radically loved each other. They loved each other as family. They didn't refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ just because that was a hip phrase for the day. They knew and understood that from the Bible, they were adopted into the family. That first of all, they didn't deserve to be there anybody any better than anybody else. And because I had been adopted and because you had been adopted, you and I were both brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we followed this journey together as a family. Not separately, not individually, not on our own lane, but all together. And it means to do that, I may have to make some sacrificial giving. Day by day, they continued in verse 46 with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. They loved getting together and worshiping. They loved getting together. 
we, we find out that they were still going and worshiping in the temple. More than likely, they didn't participate in the sacrificial part of the temple any longer because they had just become to realize that Jesus was ultimately the sacrifice. But they still went and prayed in the temple and they still met together in what we would call big church. And then they would come together and they would get together on a regular basis in each other's homes. And they would share together what Christ is doing, eating together, regular meals, but here breaking bread from house to house. Talking about God's goodness. One of the phrases says breaking the bread. The actual term, the bread, leads us to believe that what they're talking about is the Lord's Supper. And what is the key element of why we take the Lord's Supper? We are to remember. So when they got together, there was no meal that didn't somewhere start have this conversation in it. What's God been doing in your life? Let's remember what God has already done for us. And among that, they probably talked about grain and they probably talked about weather and they talked about how's your horse and how's your camel and all that sort of stuff. They care. They covered all life stuff too. But somewhere in there, they made sure they gave God the glory that he was due and brought him into the center of the picture. And they loved to do this because I'm sure to do that on a daily basis was a little inconvenient for their life. I mean, most of them were farmers. Some guys might have been, you know, like Paul might have been a sailor. Well, they worked long hours for what they did. So how in the world did they find time every day to get together? I don't know. Are we more busy than they are? I doubt it. Same number of hours. But they realized that it was an important thing. So when I hear today that there are some Christians, air quotes, I'm not a judge whether they're Christian or not, but they're Christians who think it's okay if they... Just, I'll just worship at home. I always think this, where in the Bible do you get that? I mean, if you show it to me, I'm glad to think about it, but I don't get that anywhere. Because what they did is they saw the importance of getting together. And not only saw the importance of getting together, they thought it was pretty important that they do it often. So the second kind of variation of that is, okay, I'll come to church, but... I don't know. You know, it used to be that if I came three times a month, that was a lot. Now new statistics say this. The average church attender now comes less than twice a month. They'll come, but they don't come all the time. Because there's other things that are more important. Now, I don't know what those are, and they probably would not acknowledge and use that word. But, you know, maybe it's a golf day. And that's certainly more important than getting together as a church. Maybe it's a day on the lake. That's certainly more. Maybe it's a college football game. That is certainly more important than getting together. Somehow, we've taken our black pen and we redacted out the tough and difficult passages. And we've treated God's word like it was far, far away in a distant galaxy. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Last, after they worshiped together, they weren't afraid to share this faith story together with others. Because it's contagious. I mean, because their lives were not about what they talked about, it's 
what they lived. And people saw that what they lived was way different than everybody else. And a matter of fact, some people saw and went, it's way different than you used to be. You're a different dude now than you used to be. What's that all about? And God honored the fact that they studied his word, that they worshiped together, uh, uh, that they loved each other. And the people looked at that and said, there's something different about this group of little Christians, little Christ followers. There's something different about them, and I want to know what it's about. In the newsletter this month, I alerted to, alluded to a phrase that I ran across a number of years ago. And I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's empowering and, and challenging to me. It's inspiring to hear that, is it possible? Is it still possible that the church could be a place where you and I could love and be loved? Where you and I could know and be known. Where you and I could serve and be served. I think if we don't redact too much of Acts chapter 2, we may discover that what God put before us is that exact possibility. If it is true, then would you give your life to any lesser dream than that? I mean, really. Can you imagine anything that's more life-transforming than to being loved and served and known deeply and for you to have an opportunity to love and serve and know others? Is there anything greater in life that you could respond to? If God's A priority is the establishment and the development of a biblical functioning community where people are passionately engaged with God and with each other in the world, If Jesus said, I'm primarily going to do one thing between my ascension and my return, and that is to build my church. If engaged communities are the hope of the world because government and education and businesses cannot change lives, only Jesus Christ can. If those are true, then let me ask you a question. Is your life appropriately ordered around the establishment of and the development of and the participation in and the prayer support for and your financial support for an engaged community. Whether it's here or if you're from another church, wherever you participate. Fortunately, I had a defining moment in my life. And I wonder how many of us here today maybe have had a late night existential crisis And ask questions like, what am I going to do the rest of my life? Have I done the best thing that I ever can do? And it's everything else downhill from now. What is my life ordered around? What's receiving my ultimate allegiance to? And what does my heart beat fast for? Is the church that place for you? Could you say like in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Is that what you sense when you come to church? And if not, since you and I are the church, the only one we can blame is ourselves. I want to ask you, 
Is what you're giving your life to a lesser dream? I want to call you out of the shadows. I want to call you out of this lesser dream. I want to challenge all of us to reorder our lives and our heart's affections around that which matters the most. And that is becoming an active and engaged member in an Acts chapter 2 church. I don't believe that it's just a story a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I honestly believe that it's possible today to be a part of an Acts chapter 2 church. And if it's Christ's A priority, I think it ought to be our priority as well. Let's pray. Father, understand that that begins with understanding who you are first. I don't want to neglect the possibility that maybe somebody here hears that about a church that might could exist like that, but they don't even have a relationship with you. Maybe the fact that church doesn't mean anything to somebody here this morning might be the light that you're shining on the heart that says you've just been playing a redacted good life that looks like a Christian, but maybe you haven't really given your heart and life over to this God who wants you to be a part of a life-changing community. But my guess is, Father, that there may be somebody here like this. The majority of us here today have some kind of life and some kind of desire to follow you in our faith. So what I pray for today, Father, is just this that you would re-engage us in this opportunity to serve each other and serve you. That we would find this uh, an all-encompassing task in our lives. That church would not be a part of our life, but it would be the center hub around which all of our life represents. And then ultimately, in that following your church what we'd be following is your plan of distributing the, the incredible love and grace and mercy of Christ Jesus in our community to those that know us and love us and to those that we love and know. That, Father, we would step up to the plate to be a person who loved and knew and served others. For today, Lord, whatever you have in store for us and whatever the call on anybody's heart, Lord, first we give you the glory and honor for it. And I pray that in our weakness, even as we reconsider this right now, Lord, we'd have the faith to step out and answer the question boldly. Here am I, Lord. I don't get it all. It frightens me a little bit. But here I am. Send me. We pray that this would be done in your name and to your glory. Amen.